0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for February twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. Here's today's rundown. There's a decision concerning the long-running class action suit Barrows versus Becerra. Rack Monitor attorney and physician Dr. John K. Hall will report our lead story. Also, we'll hear the latest legal jokes of the No Surprises Act. Monitor Monday legislative analyst Matthew Albright has details. And we'll hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor
1: and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report, and we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday Rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Position Advisory
0: Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Let me start with a follow-up to something I reported last week. I noted that
2: in New York City, the retired municipal workers are upset because they're being forced into a Medicare Advantage plan. Well, it turns out what the city did was form its own Medicare Advantage plan specifically for these workers. They had to design it as an MA plan to get all the regulatory protections that MA plans get. As a result, unlike most MA plans, the enrollees can go out of network and still get their care covered. I continue to think things would be much easier if this country had a single payer with one set of rules. Oh, wait, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Um, Next, I want to call out Blue Shield blue cross of south dakota for a blatant lie they sent out an email last week that stated that the no surprises act requires all providers to review their provider directory listing once every 90 days to ensure its accuracy then 45 minutes later they recalled that email noting that their system does not currently allow providers to log in and review their data but they lied there is no such provision for providers to check the directory The law requires the health plans to check the accuracy of their provider directory every 90 days and places no obligation on the providers to do anything. When will insurance companies stop making things up? Next, last week, a listener asked why it's called RAC Monitor if we rarely discuss the RACs and audits in general. And it's true. The topics we cover have evolved over time. The RACs are still out there auditing, but at least for me, I rarely hear a complaint about their activities. They seem to be auditing auditing away, but not with the gusto and blatant disregard for rules that they did in the past. In fact, they have not asked CMS for permission to audit a new issue for several months. Likewise, the COVID 19 pandemic did stop or slow all audit activity down considerably by all the agencies, so there's a paucity of topics to discuss. Now, that said, we want to hear about what audit travesties you're seeing and what's frustrating you. Email us, send me a tweet type it in the question section. We wanna talk about what you wanna hear about. Finally, one thing we don't talk about here is healthcare received by our veterans in the VA system. As we know, most veterans do go to the VA, which by the way is a perfect example of single payer healthcare. And questions are often raised about the quality of care provided to veterans at VA facilities. Well, a study released last week attempted to answer that question. The researchers looked at medical care received by veterans who had emergency medical conditions and were taken to either a VA or a non-VA hospital. And the results show that those taken to the VA had a 46% lower risk of mortality over the next 28 days. Of course, there are many confounding factors to a study like this, but it's certainly reassuring to know that our veterans are getting excellent medical care. Thanks, Chuck.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with a monitor Monday risky business report is health attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning at about the same time, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck,
3: I'm going to cover a pair of topics this week. First, both Matthew Albright and I are going to talk about the Texas Medical Association's successful challenge to a portion of the No Surprises Act. That was my surprise part of the talk. So thanks to their litigation, part of the No Surprises Act has been declared invalid. Matthew's going to talk about the small but important part of the law that was reversed, but I'm going to focus on what did not happen. That case will make no changes to the obligations for most of the healthcare industry to provide a good faith estimate to any patient who schedules a service three or more business days in advance if the patient does not plan to use their insurance to pay for the claim. In other words, if a patient is uninsured or choosing not to use their insurance, And scheduling something three or more days in advance, they need to get the good faith estimate, and the court decision will not change that. And that applies whether you're in a clinic, a skilled nursing facility, a physical therapy operation, pretty much you name it, if it requires a healthcare license. Similarly, the requirement to give patients a disclosure explaining their rights under the NSA remains unchanged. I do want to note that one helpful fact is also unchanged. The government has still not issued civil monetary penalties for the law. Right now, there's really only one significant consequence for failing to comply with the No Surprises Act. A patient who's not using their insurance to pay for their services can challenge the bill if you either fail to provide them with a good faith estimate or if the estimate is more than $400 too low. Now, when the civil monetary penalties are issued, this will change. But in the meantime, failing to follow the law is not likely to result in serious consequences. My second topic is I want to address a question from longtime listener Vera. She's expressing frustration about getting information about UPIC audits. When she contacts her Medicare administrative contractor, Neridian, to ask about a UPIC audit, She receives the reply, no news is good news. And she asks, what can we do about these UPIC audits? Well, this is a good question. Now, some of you know I'm about to go into battle with Coventbridge because they have failed to apply the two midnight rule while auditing some of my clients. As we've discussed in the past, they claim that patients who only need an outpatient level of hospital care for more than two midnights are not eligible to be an inpatient. And that, of course, is completely wrong, because if you need hospital care, whether you need inpatient or outpatient is wrong. Now, the good news is that several of my clients who are being audited by Prage on this very topic received letters closing the audit with no findings. My hunch is that they may finally be learning their lesson and actually preparing to apply the two-midnight rule. However, it hasn't withdrawn the negative findings it issued prior to this uh, realization. Now I'm going to be reaching out to CMS in the hopes my client won't need to go through the appeal process to write this wrong. Now, back to, uh, to Vera's question. UPICs are a somewhat strange critter. They have the ability to audit organizations, but they don't actually issue the overpayment letter. They complete their audit and send the results to the MAC. Now, I'm not surprised the MAC doesn't know what's happening with the UPIC audit. They're totally different companies. Until the UPIC finds forwards its findings, the MAC isn't in the loop. While that disconnect might be frustrating, I actually think it's a good thing. I have had clients receive UPIC audit results informing them that a written overpayment will be forthcoming, but the client never hears a word from the Medicare administrative contractor. My advice to you is the same whether you're being audited by a MAC, a UPIC, or any other member of the alphabet soup. Be patient, sit tight, and let sleeping audits lie. I agree with the contractor that no news is good news. Until someone sends you a demand letter, I think you should accept that silence is golden. It may be hard to track, and it is definitely anxiety-producing, but it really isn't that bad. On the other hand, if you do get an overpayment after a UPIC fails to apply the proper standard, in that case, I think it's worth fighting tooth and nail. Now, getting a bad audit result demonstrates that while well, Tom Petty made a number of good observations, I disagree with his assertion that waiting is the hardest part. The hardest part is really getting bad audit results. The waiting is far, far better. Than getting the bad news.
1: In the audit context, silence equals hope. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And coming up next, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, and our special guest, Rack Monitor attorney and physician, Dr. John K. Hall. He's standing by to report our lead story the Enigma case of Richard Fagnall. It's Monday, it's February 28th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: In recent months, maintaining strict regulatory compliance has been a challenge, to say the least. There's a deluge of regulatory news, plus the ongoing impact of 1135 waivers. Now, more than ever, you need to make sure that everyone on your team, including those who work remotely, is following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance webcasts is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your entire team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts, featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's the best part. You can get a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the Portal page at Rack University.
1: Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is senior health care consultant, Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany also has the Monitor Money Listener Survey. Good morning, Tiffany.
4: Good morning, all, and thank you, Chuck. Prior to COVID, employees were traveling to the office, and there was time to decompress from the day and put in some separation from work and home. Well, we know life is more of a work-life balance then, and now we are in full swing work-life integration. As part of my work, I spent the last two years providing case management to frontline healthcare workers, many of them minority women earning minimum wage. They were working at home, and I saw firsthand as they tried to maintain their job while homeschooling their children and provide for their families. COVID would run through their house as a firestorm as they had to grieve, battle their own illnesses, and still turn on the computer and show up for work to guarantee a paycheck. Some had offices on ironing boards, and often they were located in their bedrooms because that was the only private space in their home. This month, the Northeast Business Group on Health published a guide for employers on how to review and evaluate workplace social determinants of health. They reported that lower-income employees experienced disparities in health, including higher rates of morbidity, mortality, and health conditions that stem from great exposure to... Position and social hazards in the workplace, and a higher risk for chronic illness. We also know that lower-income employees tend to have more concerns with out-of-pocket me- medical costs, resulting in delayed care for treatment of medical conditions or preventative health. According to the Commonwealth Fund, 24% of uncovered employees are considered underinsured. What we see is that lower-income employees tend to use their health care systems similar to those that without health insurance, seeking services only when it's an emergency and signing up for high deductible catastrophic plans, so less money is deducted from their paychecks. Many healthcare employers are at partial or full risk arrangements for their employee health plans and have included many programs under employee assistance programs to help lower the cost of care for their employees. This includes mental health services, marketing for preventative care, gym memberships, case management, and health coaching, to name a few. These programs can provide employees with access to services to address their individual needs and provide additional supportive of care. However, are employees really willing to address the social determinants that impact those that delay care and may be unlikely to participate in these programs? It may be time to consider the factors that impact lower-wage workers, which this report highlights the most, like providing a liv- livable wage, access to affordable housing, nutritious food, child care, and transportation. Imagine the employee satisfaction ratings and employee retention if your employees helped address, employers helped address the social determinants impacting so many frontline workers, many who were considered essential during COVID. So today I ask does your employer provide support for health coaching, case management, or employee assistance programs? And are you taking advantage of them? Yes, it is provided and I use them. Yes, it's provided, but I am not using those services. No, it's not provided. I'm not sure if they are offered or does not apply. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tiffany, very much. I was senior health care consultant. Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And as Tiffany said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday Legislative Update.
0: The legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market leading provider focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost effective payments backed by award winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide.
1: Here now is Matthew Albright.
5: Chuck, as David Glazer mentioned, a significant decision out of a U.S. district court last week will. Significantly change a specific aspect of the No Surprises Act implementation. The court found in favor of the Texas Medical Association with a summary judgment that vacated, really repealed some of the sections of the No Surprises Act Part Two regulation. Those regulations dealt with the arbitration or independent dispute resolution process that the No Surprises Act sets up for providers to use if they are unhappy with health plans reimbursement for certain out of network claims. The court's decisions hands healthcare providers a win when it comes to that arbitration process, because under the court's ruling, the arbitrator now has to consider five different factors instead of just one when deciding what the proper reimbursement should be. In essence, under this ruling, providers will be in a better position to argue to an arbitrator that their reimbursal should be higher than a plan's in-network rate. So let's break down the court's ruling. First, as David clarified court's decision does not affect patients or consumers at all. This decision is really just about how much payers should reimburse hospitals and other providers for certain out-of-network claims. The court's decision does not weaken any of the consumer protections against balanced billing in emergency and non-voluntary situations. What the court did was basically repeal five different paragraphs and sentences in the No Surprises Act regulation That require arbitrators to consider the median in-network rate as the default appropriate reimbursement rate. When those paragraphs are removed, the regulations can now be read to say that the arbitrator must now consider four other factors, above and beyond the plan's median in-network rate. Chuck, it's a little bit like the difference between a teacher that gives you a grade strictly by adding up your test scores and another teacher that might also consider other more qualitative factors, such as extra credit how well you participate in class, whether you help clean the chalkboard. In other words, under the court's ruling, the arbitrator's decision will now be less mathematical. That is, how close the payment offer is to plans meeting in-network rate and be more subjective as the arbitrator will now be considering other qualitative factors such as experience and quality of the provider. So what does this all mean for the industry? Under the court's decision, it is likely that more providers will now push to negotiate higher reimbursement with their payers. And if providers don't like the outcome of those negotiations, more providers will use the arbitration process to try try and up their reimbursement. So what happens now? There are other lawsuits percolating in which provider groups are suing on similar grounds, and we don't know whether decisions in those lawsuits will ultimately conflict with the Texas decision. There's also the possibility that the administration will appeal the Texas court's judgment. However, for the time being, Chuck, the court's decision is now the law of the land, and it was a rather surgical decision. A policy element of the NSA regulations was taken out, but the regulations still make perfect sense without that policy, and according to the judge in this case, there should be little disruption to providers and plans in carrying out the basic provisions of the No Surprises Act. So back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning again, Tiffany.
4: Thanks, Chuck. So the question for our listeners today was, does your employer provide support for health coaching, case management, and employee assistance programs? And are you taking advantage of them? So the majority of listeners actually reported, yes, that their employer is providing those services, which is great to hear, but that they're not actually using those services. And so part of that would be just exploration to see what do those services entail. Many of them offer a lot of great help for everyday use, for life and work-life integration. Eight percent said, I am not sure if they're offered, and then about three percent says does not apply Congratulations. It looks like 17% about said yes, that's provided and they are using those services. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Timothy, very much for your survey. Coming up next, an Enigma, the long running class action suit we know today is Barrels versus Becerra. That story is next with Dr. Don K. Hall. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Compliant Medicare
0: payment depends on understanding which spinal procedure has been performed and whether or not that procedure is on the Medicare inpatient-only list. But making the correct decision can be difficult. Fortunately, an exclusive Rack Monitor webcast will help to reinforce your ability to know which spinal procedure has been performed and whether it should be categorized as inpatient or outpatient. Register now to attend Spinal Procedures know what's on the 2022 IPO list. That webcast is Tuesday, March 15th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. So register now at the Rack University Bookstore.
1: As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, a decision has been handed down concerning the long-running class action suit, Barrels versus Becerra attorney and physician, Dr. John K. Hall, joined us now to report our lead story. Good morning, John. Hey, this decision is, one, should we get excited about it or just simply yawn? What do you think?
6: Well, Chuck, right now I'm in kind of a yawn phase. Um, This case may ultimately become irrelevant. But let me start with a brief history. Richard Bagnall was the original plaintiff over a decade ago, and he felt he was unjustly denied Part A benefits. So he did what anyone would do. He sued the secretary of HHS. Well, maybe not anyone. The case bounced back and forth between the District Court and the Second Circuit a few times with successive changes in named litigants. But finally, after a bench trial, the District Court handed down a decision. And as expected, the Secretary appealed. In January, the Second Circuit affirmed the entirety of the District Court's decision. Essential elements of that decision include, first, Medicare beneficiaries who were initially admitted as inpatients and then changed to outpatient with observation services through the action of a hospital UR committee did, in fact, hold a property interest in the inpatient Part A benefit. Second, the secretary violated the patient's due process rights by failing to provide an appeal process. Third, and most surprising, the district court declared that the hospital's UR committee actions when changing a patient's status was a state action. And this was because, in the court's words, there was significant encouragement from CMS. And finally, the district court ordered the appeal rights to essentially all beneficiaries since January of 2009 who were admitted as inpatients and subsequently changed to outpatient with observation services. It's important to note that the decision only addresses deprivation of rights to beneficiaries. It's a complete unknown how the secretary or a subsequent court will treat self-imposed losses by providers. At this point, there are two things that we can say for certain. First, these patients have appeal rights. The decision did not provide a defined process, so beneficiaries will likely have to prosecute their cases through the court system. It's not clear what reparations might be available for these beneficiaries. It's also not clear to what extent the UR. committees might share liability. This appeal process will likely be a significant burden in almost any circumstance on beneficiaries. And second, the secretary will have to do one of two things. He'll have to either order and promul — let's try that again. He'll have to either develop and promulgate rules to address the deprivation of beneficiaries' due process rights, or he'll have to appeal to the Supreme Court. So I'd like to offer some guidance for providers until this gets sorted out. The ruling does not address the impact on providers. Dr. Hirsch has previously raised a range of potential impacts and the genuinely ironic twist to the U.R. committee qua government contractor. Next, it's important to understand that the decision only addresses patients who received inpatient hospital services but were improperly classified as outpatients. The Secretary could address adverse financial impact of long-term observation stays such as extensive copays, self-administered medications, and even patients without Part B coverage. Next, I suspect that neither the courts nor the Secretary will add protections for the same providers who have improperly classified these patients. Next to last, until the case is appealed, the sec or the secretary promulgates rules. Providers should review their UR processes. Assure that these patients are not improperly reclassified as outpatients. There should be very clear reasons anytime the status of an inpatient hospitalized beyond two midnights is changed. And finally, providers should consider, consider steps to prevent their physicians from entering observation orders on their own initiative without the benefit of the UR committee. In short, Chuck, this is a mess and it's probably not going to get better anytime soon. Back to you.
1: Thanks, John, very much. That was Rack Monitor Attorney and Physician Dr. John K. Hall. He was reporting our lead story. Now's the time for our Monday Q&A, and David, let's answer some of the questions. In fact, a lot of questions have been coming in this morning. David, take it away. You bet, Chuck. So thanks.
3: First of all, tons of great questions and comments, and we love that. So Jennifer asks an excellent question that should be easy to answer and is not, and I'll explain why. So does the good faith estimate apply to an orthotic and prosthetic company? Easy, straightforward question, right? Well, so let's look at why it's hard. So first, the good faith estimate has to go to facilities. But in one of the crazy things that the government did, they used the term facility two different ways in this law. So for portions of the uh, regulation, facility is limited to hospitals, ambulatory surgical centers, freestanding EDs and also um, air ambulance. But for purposes of the good faith estimate, here's what the definition of facility is. It is such as a hospital, critical access hospital, rural health center, federally qualified health center, laboratory, or imaging center in any state in which state or applicable local law provides for licensing of such an institution. So it's a such as that list wasn't exhaustive. The test appears to be licensing. So ultimately, the question is going to be, is your prosthetics and orthotics company required to be licensed in your state? I think in most states, the answer to that is no. And if no, then I would say the good faith estimate is not required. Boy, this is really crummy drafting. And I will just remind folks, there is a webinar in the store on the No Surprises Act. If you're trying to figure this stuff out, go check it out. All right, Ron, a question for you. So Adam wants Is commenting, questioning. So, cataract audits are coming in heavy. This requires us to track down external conservative treatment records. Due to the limited percentage of audits, the facility is hesitant to require all documentation up front and send the documents out. What's the best practice for addressing this?
2: First, I think what Adam was saying is sending that requesting the documentation up front would force doctors to go someplace that doesn't require the documentation, they'd lose the business. Um, So, my answer is. Um, you really need to get documentation for everything that happens in your facility to ensure medical necessity. Remember, that's a condition of participation under the utilization review to review physician services and make sure that they are medically necessary. It's really not that hard to work with the office staff at the doctor's office to say that when you're scheduling a cataract, just push a couple buttons and send us all the office notes so we have it for the hospital record. Your other option is to wait. And when you get audit requests, make sure they get reviewed to see what's being audited. And if it's a cataract, call the office and get the records before you send them to the auditor. Um, The fear about physicians leaving because they're required to send paperwork is often a fear, but it's not a danger. Um, So sometimes talking to them, explaining the risk, and and they'll be happy to cooperate.
3: So the only comment I will add is for reasons I've never understood, people often think that it is improper to include external records when you are audited. They somehow think, if we didn't make the record ourselves, it's not our record and we can't send it. And it's really important to make sure your HIM people understand they can and should send outside records. I think we have time for one last question. Dr. Lawyer Hall, I'm going to ask you this one from Annie. She's still confused. Do beneficiaries who have a status change from inpatient to outpatient observation have discharge appeal rights now?
6: The short answer is no, Um, and not because of this uh, ruling, but because of longstanding process. Now, uh, anecdotally, we have seen the QIOs on occasion take up a discharge appeal from an observation stay, even though that is not within their scope of work. But in general, anybody who is an outpatient in a bed or an outpatient with observation services does not have discharge appeal rights. Thank you so much, Dr. Hall. Chuck, I turn it back
1: to you. Thanks, David Glazer, very, very much. And that's going to be a wrap for our live edition of Monitor Monday. And We thank you so very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney and physician, Dr. John K. Hall. He reported our lead story. And by the way, in response to Annie, yes, uh, there is going to be a story by Dr. John K. Hall. Uh, in Thursday's edition of the uh, Rack Monitor News. So, uh, one more thing before we go. You can always listen to all of Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us, send us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.